please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Philippians. We're in Philippians chapter 3 this evening. Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through verses 21. Philippians 3 verse 17. Let's pray together. Father, as we talk about the hope and the reality of heaven tonight, we pray that you would put into our hearts the truth that we're citizens of heaven. And we look at all of the things that are taking place in this world and in our country, and may you remind us that you're preparing us for eternity. So God, would you have your way, and I pray that tonight we would be encouraged and we would go in tremendous joy. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. A woman received news that she was terminally ill. She had three months uh, to live. Uh, She was elderly in a Baptist church, and she asked the the pastor to come and visit with her to put together her final wishes. So they went over the songs that she wanted in the service. They also went over the verses that she wanted covered. She even included what she wanted to be buried in and desired for the service to be open casket. The pastor was getting ready to leave, and she said, one more thing. I want to be buried with a fork in my hand. And he's like, what What in the world? Why would you want to be buried with a fork in your hand? And she said, well, my whole life, growing up and coming to all the potlucks that we have at this, at this Baptist church, is they would often tell me is keep your fork. And I knew that the best was yet to come. That there was going to be some delicious chocolate cake, some really good cheesecake, some wonderful coffee. So I want people to come to my funeral and walk by my casket and ask that question of what in the world's the fork for? And then for you to inform them that the best is yet to come. And the pastor, he realized that she had a greater grasp of heaven than he did that day. And isn't that true though when we think about heaven? That it's really not about this life. We put so much focus upon this life and having comfort throughout our days here, but God has told us to put our focus upon eternal life, to be heavenly minded. And it's been said, if you're too heavenly minded, then you're no earthly good. Maybe you've heard that. Maybe someone has told you that before. You're you're too focused on eternity and you don't care enough about the things of this life. I want to suggest to you tonight that the opposite is true, that once you become heavenly minded, then you become of earthly good. Because when you get that perspective of, is this going to matter in eternity, it causes us to devote ourselves to things that really matter in this life. So let's look at these four verses. Read these four verses with me, and then we'll dissect it together. This is verse 17, reading down to verse 21. It says, Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk, as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I've told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue 
all things to himself. So in this passage, there's three primary things. There's an example to follow. And that's the example that Paul gives us. Then the second thing that we see is that we're to watch for wolves. There's wolves to keep an eye on, wolves to watch. And then the final thing is there's citizenship to enjoy. There's the citizenship of heaven for us to eagerly wait for the coming of Jesus Christ. So Paul begins and he says, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. So you're taking notes. First point of the passage is there is an example to follow. The, the Apostle Paul, he's able to say, guys, you know me. You know my lifestyle. You know what's important to me. You know my weaknesses and where my failures are, but I've provided an example for you to follow. Saying, also, I want you to take note of those who are walking in a similar pattern, in a similar fashion. So not only Paul, but also others that were walking in a godly way. And he says, you've got now a pattern to be able to follow. You guys know as we go through books of the Bible, context is really important. So what came prior to verse 17? If you remember back from a few weeks ago, as Paul was saying, this is the one thing that I do. I forget those things that are behind, and I press forward to the things that are ahead. I want to lay hold of the things that God saved me for. And for Paul to define his life mission that way, this is the one thing. This is the one thing that I really put my attention upon. I haven't arrived. I'm not attained. I'm forgetting what's behind, and I'm pressing forward to what God has for me. We talked about how God is always a forward-moving God. He's always moving us into the future, growing us more into the image of Christ. Then Paul says, here's a pattern for you to be able to follow. Here's a lifestyle for you to be able to follow. I think that this is an important part of our learning as a disciple in Christ, that we leave out a lot of times in our culture and our society, is to look and see someone not perfect, but someone who's walking with the Lord that can be a godly example for you. We live in a day where we want to follow someone or something. And that's seen in social media. If you have a Twitter account, you choose who you're going to follow. And it's interesting verbiage, vocabulary, that you're saying, I'm going to follow this person. And you go online and, and you follow things that, that they want to write. You know? And Facebook, you, you send friend requests. You decide if you want to like it or not, or give it a smiley face, or a thumbs up, or, or a, a, a thumbs down. But we're saying, I'm interested in this person. I'm interested in what they have to say. So who do you follow? Hopefully it's Christ. Hopefully you've heard the words of Christ, where Christ has said, follow me. That that's the one that we're following first and foremost. But then also, that God has brought a Paul-like figure in our lives, that we can look at the pattern of their life, and say, that's what I'm going to emulate. Because some things are caught more than they're taught. Like, how do you really learn how to have a godly marriage? A lot of times, that's something that you're going to see emulated more than you're going to be able to read in a marriage book. Now, isn't there some great value to a marriage book with godly instruction? Absolutely. But it's not as good as if you got to see that modeled by your mom and dad. And you go, well, well, I never got to see that modeled by my mom and dad. So I feel clueless in this area of marriage. So you look around inside of the body of Christ, and you go, and you know, it looks like that that couple's been married a little longer than us. 
I know that they're not perfect, but could that possibly be a pattern for us to be able to follow and emulate in, in our lives? We, we see this biblical model for men's and women's ministry where older women are teaching younger women, where older men are investing in, in younger men. And so look around and say, is there a pattern that, that I could, could follow? I'm not someone who is artistic or creative or good at, at drawing. I struggled with stick figures in school to be able to, to draw those things. But as our kids enjoy drawing, I've started to sit down and begin to, to draw with them from, from time to time. And it's much easier to copy a drawing. And I don't mean like tracing it in, in that sense, but to be able to look at a kid's illustration book, for instance, and say, now I'm going to try to draw this. And I'm just looking at the hat of the police officer. I'm going, the line's about this long, and it's at this big of an angle. And I can walk away with something that is far better than I could do on my own. Why? Because I have a pattern to be able to, to follow. And that's what Paul is saying. So, so there's an example. He's living out an example. And he's saying, I want you to, to follow this example. Could your life be a pattern for somebody else? Saying, man, I sure hope not. <laughs> You know, I sure hope nobody's copying my life. Yikes, right? That, that, that's scary to, to stop and think about. And again, it's not perfection. I know Paul wasn't perfect. And we, we hear that and we think perfection. But they, would they look at your life and see someone who loves the Lord? Someone who's trying to follow the Lord? Who's spending time in the Word and in prayer and at a Bible study on Wednesday night? There's probably a lot more to emulate in your life than you would possibly think. Satan's really quick to, to come and beat you up and say, Oh, you're a terrible example. Nobody would want to follow or emulate your life. It's something to pray through and think through. And if you go, you know, I don't really have any Pauls in my life. Maybe stop and consider, God, would you bring some? We, we do have the example from Scripture, even though we don't know the Apostle Paul. We can take that same instruction and say, I want to live a life that's similar to the Apostle Paul. I want to have that same mission statement that's saying, I'm forgetting those things that are behind and pressing forward to those things that are ahead. You would think from a verse like this that they were spending a ton of time with the Apostle Paul. But that was not true. Paul's where? He's in prison. He's not at the church of Philippi. Paul didn't stay very long at churches. He went from church to church to church. From the book of Acts, one of the longest periods that he ever stayed at one church is two years. And that was it. But they knew about his life. They were able to observe his life enough to have a pattern to be able to follow. So an example to follow. And then in verse 18, it's wolves to watch, wolves to, to keep an eye on. Are you guys aware of up by Woodland Park and Divide, there's apparently like this wolf exhibit that you can go and see all these different wolves. And we've often wanted to go as a family, but we've looked on their website and they have this warning that says, if you have toddlers, you may not want to come. You, know, you should probably wait till your kids are a little bit older. And when you read that kind of warning, you're like, man, these wolves are crazy. They're going to eat some of my kids. And we have four kids, and they're getting older, but we have had a toddler for years now. There's been a toddler in the Cartier home that could be wolf bait. So, so we have not yet gone to, to this wolf ranch up there in, in Divide. Paul, one of the things that he was passionate about is making sure that the body of Christ could spot a wolf in sheep's clothing, to use the way that Jesus described it. He knew that there would be people that would come into the body of Christ 
and want to lead them away spiritually, lead them away from Christ and the cross to this place of destruction. And the same is true for us. As citizens of heaven, as being heavenly minded, we need to be able to navigate this life and say, there's someone that I need to follow because they're following Christ. They're not perfect, but they're following Christ. And there's a wolf that I need to keep an eye on. Because if I'm not careful, they'll eat my kids. (laughs) So for many walk of whom I've told you often. So what does Paul say? There's many that walk in this way. And he often warned about them. And now I tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross. So Paul was so passionate in his warning with these wolves that he was weeping. I think he was weeping over the condition of the false prophets and the damage that they would do to the church. So you can see the kind of love and the urgency that's here. If someone was giving you a warning and they were, they were weeping, they were so moved by the warning, so moved for us to be alert that they were moved with that kind of, of passion. One of the things that we notice about these false teachers is they're enemies of the cross of Christ. Meaning, their message is the exact opposite of the gospel. That Jesus died for your sins. That he rose again according to the scriptures. Preaching another way to be saved. A salvation by works. Know the gospel. Know the theology of salvation. Understand it well. Believe it and embrace it. Because there will people that will say, well, that's great that you trust in Christ. That's great that you believe the gospel, but you really need to, and they put a system of works. And they were Judaizers. They were those that were trying to bring the church back under the law of which God had delivered from them. If you're thinking of someone's life, and if you're thinking of their message, is it one of the cross? Or is it one where they're opposed to the cross? They don't speak of the cross. They don't trust in the sacrifice of Christ. They're not leading people to the foot of the cross. In verse 19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. I believe that this end in destruction is twofold. A lot of times a false teacher will experience destruction in this life. Not always. But they're leading people astray. They're not walking with Christ. And so that's going to lead to destruction. But then ultimately in eternity. That's one thing to be lost and not know Christ and be eternally separated from the Lord. But God throughout his word seems to have a special hot spot for false teachers. A special hot spot for those who take his message, the message of his son, and thwart it and pervert it. And so here Paul's saying their end is going to be destruction. And then he also says, whose God is their belly. So you need to watch people. You need to be a people watcher. Look at their lives. What's the pattern of their life? Are they walking with Christ? Are they pointing people to Christ? Are they speaking of Christ? Are they in love with what Christ has done upon the cross? Are they serving him? And then also look at their life and go, are they serving themselves? Is their God their belly? There's a lot of people throughout church history and currently that are taking the message of Christ only as a means for their own gain only as a means to fill their own wallets. And what they really are serving are themselves. What they're really serving is their own needs and their God is their belly. You'll hear it in their teaching because most of all their teaching will have to do with finances. Now, does the Bible have a lot to say about finances? Absolutely. Is it an important topic to bring up? Absolutely. As we go through the scripture, we'll talk about it. But what if 99% 
of the messages that we gave here at Rocky Mountain Calvary had to do with giving. You might smell a wolf, huh? And especially if you start hearing things like, if you give, then we can promise to you that your income is going to go up 100%. God loves a cheerful giver. You put that tithe first, and God's just going to rain down those spiritual blessings. And in fact, God wants you to be rich and wealthy and a millionaire, and it's all going to start with your giving. Sound a lot like the life of Christ, doesn't it? Do we give to get? Is there this promise that if I give my tithe to, to the Lord, that somehow that I'm promised to have a whole bunch more money and, I, and I'm going to be a millionaire? No, not at all. In fact, we do it out of love to the Lord and trust him and there's spiritual blessing, but we can't promise that financial blessing. So watch what they're serving, whose God is their belly and whose glory is their shame. If someone's boasting all the time, boasting of themselves, pointing people to themselves, it's shameful. The boasting is shameful. Their glorying is shameful. Be careful if you hear somebody boasting. And then this is interesting at the end of verse 19, who set their mind on earthly things. So a false teacher is going to have his mind on earthly things instead of on heavenly things, instead of on the gospel, instead of on our people going to heaven, our people going to hell. And they're going to take hearts and minds away from being heavenly-minded to focus upon earthly things. And I think sometimes we like that. We like teachers that put a focus on the here and now. Because there's something in our flesh that says, I want to hear something that's going to make my life easier. I'm going to hear something that makes my life more comfortable. And if you're telling me, if I live godly in Christ Jesus, I'm going to suffer persecution— that's not good for book sales, right? People don't like to hear that. But that's the reality and, and the truth of, of Scripture. And there'll be that focus back on earthly things. So there's an example to follow. There's wolves to watch. Keep your eyes on the wolves. Wolves will be very tricky and sneaky and deceptive. And so be careful. And then finally, there's a citizenship to enjoy. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is writing to the city, the church of Philippi, that's a Roman colony, under occupation of the empire of Rome. Rome would conquer territories, then send in Roman citizens to develop colonies. Roman citizenship was everything. If you had Roman citizenship, you were in with the most powerful empire of the world. But if you didn't have Roman citizenship, you were at a huge disadvantage. The Apostle Paul knew this in his own life. He was a Roman citizen, even though he was Jewish. And there was times in the book of Acts where he used his Roman citizenship to his advantage because it came with great rights. Paul says, I'm not just going to let this go. I'm a steward of my citizenship. I'm going to get a much more fair trial if I let them know that I am a Roman citizen. So here Paul is saying to them, in this day where Roman citizenship is so important, he says, really, our citizenship is in heaven. And for us now, it's important for us to realize and understand that our first citizenship is in heaven. We're God's children, we're God's people, and we have 
eternal life. And secondary, our citizenship is in the country in which we live, the United States of America, in which we're hugely blessed. I want you to understand some of the rights that came with being a Roman citizen because I think it helps us understand the context of this passage. If you were a Roman citizenship, you had the the right to vote in Roman assemblies. So if you weren't a citizen, you couldn't vote, but if you were, you could. You had the right to stand for civic or public office. So if you were a citizen, you could be elected to have civic or public office. You had the right to make legal contracts and to hold property as a Roman citizen. That's pretty cool. You could buy property. You could be a homeowner if you were a citizen. But if you weren't, you couldn't. You had a right to have a lawful marriage with a Roman citizen according to Roman principles to have legal rights over the family and for the children of any such marriage to be counted as Roman citizens. So if you weren't a citizen of Rome, they weren't going to honor your marriage. That's a pretty big deal. So with citizenship came the right to marriage and also for your children to be able to be citizens. It goes on. You had the right of immunity from some taxes and other legal obligations, especially local rules and regulations. So if you weren't a citizen of Rome, they were going to tax you at a higher rate. The right to sue in courts and the right to be sued. Oh, that's a good one, right? The right to have legal trial, to appear before a proper court and to defend oneself. We see that in Paul's life. The right to appeal from the decision of a magistrate and to appeal the lower court decision. You could opt up to a higher court. Following the early 2nd century BC, a Roman citizen could not be tortured or whipped and could transfer sentence of death to voluntary exile unless he was found guilty of treason. So if you were a Roman citizen and you got the death penalty, you could say, I'll take voluntary exile instead. That's incredible. If you did commit treason, if accused of treason, a Roman citizen had the right to be tried in Rome, and even if sentenced to death, no Roman citizen could be sentenced to die on the cross. If Jesus were a Roman citizen, his life would have looked different. He would have had more rights here on this earth if he were a Roman citizen. But he wasn't. He chose not to be a Roman citizen. Why? So that he could make us to be citizens of heaven. I'll be honest with you. It's difficult for me to think about heaven as much as I should to really enjoy the citizenship that God has given to me. Do you know that Jesus was heavenly minded? That he put his focus upon the joy that was set before him with the Father and the bride of Christ inheriting salvation? In John 13, verse 1, right before the crucifixion of Christ, it says, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he would depart from this world to the Father. Did you catch that? says he knew that his time had come that he would depart from this world to the Father. He had his eye on eternity. He knew that this life was temporary. Notice what he did. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John 13 then tells us he, he washed their feet. He had an eye on eternity. It wasn't about this life. He knew he would depart to be with the Father. 
Matthew 6, a passage you know well. Let me read it to you. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus, in his love for us, he said, You know what? I want your greatest treasure to be in heaven. Because he knows the way that he created us is heart follows treasure. We rightfully so value our children. We treasure our children. And because we treasure them, you probably keep track of them now even into adulthood, no matter where they're at on the planet, right? Maybe you've got an adult child that's overseas. You know where they're at. You've got them turned on on find their iPhone. You know, you've got their, you know exactly where they're at. You're tracking them all the time, right? Because you treasure them. You, you, you long for them. And God's saying, don't just lay up all your treasures here on earth because they're temporary. They're going to be destroyed. But live in such a way where you're laying up treasure in heaven because as you're living for Christ and you're living for eternity, you're investing in eternity, then you're going to have your heart set on heaven. And that's the best place for us to be. God in his love for his children says, I don't want your hope set upon this life. There's a song that my wife and I have been laughing about here recently, and it's smile, the worst is yet to come. (laughs) And that's a pretty good, darn good song right there, right? Because from an earthly perspective, smile, it's just going to get worse. That's the reality of of the way things are going until until Christ, Christ returns. But when we think about eternity and our treasures upon eternity, it's not that we have an earthly hope, but we have a heavenly hope. And Jesus goes on to say in John 14, again, these are verses that should resonate. It says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And where I am, there you may be also. Jesus didn't say, hey, Let your heart not be troubled because there is a National Republican Convention taking place right now. Don't let your heart be troubled. He doesn't say, don't let your heart be troubled because they're going to have the Democratic National Convention. He says, don't let your heart be troubled because if you know me, if you trust me, I am preparing a place for you. It's eternal. It's heavenly-minded. I'm looking forward to heaven. If you're the child of God, this is the worst it's going to get in this life. This is the most suffering you're going to go through in this life, and it's only temporary. Think about how wonderful this life is, how amazing at God's creation, these storms that we've, we've been having, the beauty of being able to just look up at Pike's Peak. People come from all over the world just to be able to look at what we enjoy every day. And he did that so quickly in the creation account, speaking those things into existence, a six-day account of, of creation. And he's been preparing a place for you in eternity. That's what we focus on. John 16, verse 33 says, These things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Do we believe that yet? This world is going to be a bumpy ride. You will have tribulation. 
but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. It's eternity. It's the focus upon eternity. Paul gives us a powerful illustration about heaven in 2 Corinthians 5. Let me read this to you. He says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, so he's saying our bodies is an earthly house, it's a tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So we have a glorified body that God has prepared for us. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. Does your tent groan? Do you find yourself going, oh man, I just ache for heaven. I ache for eternal life. Does your heart ever groan? Oh, I just eagerly wait for, for Christ. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed. So it's not so much that we want to leave this life, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who's given us a spirit as a guarantee. Church, you are on a giant camping trip. You're tent camping right now. So we as a family went tent camping Monday night up outside of Woodland Park, and this big storm decided to come in. We figured it was a good time to go into Woodland Park and get some dinner. Nice to camp just four miles out of, out of town. So we sat at the, the pizza place, had some good pizza, go back and do the campfire thing. Starts to rain again. All right, time to get in the tent. We will not be disheartened or discouraged. We're going to stick this thing out. Kids, we're having fun, right? Everybody having fun on the camping trip? So I'll get in the tent, and it's raining, and it's 9 o'clock at night. And, you know, thankfully the tent did its job, and it's a good tent. We're thankful for the tent. Good, good sleeping bags. But as I was laying there in bed, all six of us trying to sleep, inevitably through the night, at least one person is up, and it's always the domino effect. What could I think about? My bed at home. All right? Thankfully, this camping trip is temporary. One night is about the right amount of time for tent camping. Amen? <laughs> and we got home and we talked about, you know, our lives are just a camping trip. It's just a camping trip. And there's going to be bumps. There's going to be bruises. There's going to be rainy nights. There's going to be heartbreaks because God has prepared us for what? Eternity. He's prepared us for the eternal destination, to go home to be with him, to have that glorified body. But we're going to be extremely frustrated if we think that this is our permanent dwelling, if this is it, instead of putting our focus and having that heavenly mindset. Paul goes on to say in Colossians 3, he says, If then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above which where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things on the earth. Put your mind on things above. Seek those things that are above. So to be heavenly-minded, to enjoy our citizenship in heaven, what does this mean? How would we then live? How would this affect our perspective? What would be our priority if we're heavenly-minded? I think the first thing would be to make sure that we know Christ and we're making him known. Agreed? 
Wouldn't that be the most important thing in all relationships? Is I want to make sure that you're going to be there. When we're around the throne room of God, I want you to be there. That would be true of our relationship with our spouse, our kids, our friends, our coworkers, our strangers, people we've never met before, people in this community and across the ocean. If we're really focused on heaven, it's not that we're disconnected from people. All of a sudden, people become really important. It's like, I want to make sure that they know Christ. I want to make sure that they're going to spend eternity with, with the Lord. How would being heavenly minded affect things like our finances? To have that heavenly mindset on our finances. How would it affect relationships? How would it affect our physical condition if we're, we're struggling with an illness that's chronic? And all of a sudden to infuse hope in the midst of this daily challenge. But a lot of times, if I'm honest, I'm just wanting life to get easier. I'm wanting life to get a little bit more comfortable. I'm trying to figure out the equation to make things go more smoothly. And I think my Heavenly Father is saying, Eric, no, that's not it at all. I want you to focus on heaven. I want you to put your heart and your mind there and seek those things that are above. In verse 20, we saw that we're to eagerly wait for our Savior. Does your heart eagerly wait for Jesus to come? Where he takes you home to be with the Lord or he returns? How cool would the rapture be? Where Christ just takes up his church? Where he returns? And we end tonight's study with this promise. It says, who will transform our lowly body that it'll be conformed to his glorious body. We're thankful for this body. It's the greatest physical resource that God's given to us. We're made in God's image, but he's going to transform it into his glorious body. Imagine your glorified body that you're going to have for all of eternity, and it's never going to know sin. Isn't that going to be wonderful? We have sinned a lot in this body. I've sinned a lot in this body. And in that glorified body, I'm never going to sin. That's going to be incredible. To wake up in his likeness, to be like him. And then also, no one is going to sin against us. We've been sinned against. We've been hurt. We've been stomped on. And to have no one sin against you. How great our relationship's going to be in heaven with no sin. Glorified bodies, glorified relationships, not struggling with our own sin or the sin of anyone else. This body that we're going to have, this glorified body, is never going to have a cold. It's going to be so nice never to get a cold again. No cancer, no dentist appointments, no fillings, no prescriptions. Walgreens is in the rearview mirror, folks. I mean, it's a glorified body with the absence of of any disease, of any sickness, of any death, no more death. Christ is going to wipe away all of the tears. But do you know what the greatest thing with this body is going to be? Is we're going to behold God. We're going to see God with this glorified body. Job tells us in Job 19, verse 25, it's in the midst of his struggle, in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his questions, he says, for I know that my Redeemer lives... And he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, he knew that he was going to lose this earthly body. And this I know, that in my flesh, I shall see God. He understood that God had a glorified body for him. My, my skin's going to be destroyed, but yet 
I know that I'm going to see God. How does that make sense? Only if you're going to receive a glorified body. What's that going to be like to behold the Lord? To bow down and to worship before the Lord. Something that we know that we're going to do without a shadow of a doubt in our glorified body as we're beholding the Lord is we're going to eat some really good food. God's into food. He created it. Even in the fallen state, it brings us together. Every time we see Christ in his resurrected state, what's he doing? He's eating with his disciples. Say, hey, Peter, I made you some breakfast. Come on, buddy. We got some things to talk about. Come and dine. What does Jesus describe heaven as? The marriage feast of the Lamb, where his bride is gathered together at his ultimate feast. Can you imagine all the good food that we're going to taste as we're beholding Jesus at this ultimate celebration. And you're not even going to have to count calories. It's going to be a whole new definition of organic right there. It's as organic as you possibly can get. All inside of this glorified body that God is going to give to us. And we end with according to the working by which he's able even to subdue all things to himself. I think being heavenly minded, you get engaged in all areas of life because you love God and you care about people. We are thankful for our country. This doesn't mean we disengage from our earthly citizenship. I hope you vote. I hope you're registered to vote. I hope you realize that people have, have died in order for us to, to be able to have that, that freedom. This isn't, this isn't something that says, this just releases me from from all of my responsibilities. I heard this great message on heaven, so I don't see the need to be able to go out and vote. Well, the Bible tells us that it's better for everybody when there's a godly leader in place. Christians need to engage in the process and be salt and light, and hopefully by doing that, we're pointing people to the eternal hope of Jesus Christ. This doesn't mean that you go out and you open up a bunch of new MasterCards and Visa accounts. Say, well, we got heaven, so I'm just going to go ahead and build up this credit card debt and pray that the rapture comes. If heaven's real and we're headed towards heaven and we're accountable to the Lord with how we live our lives, then that reflects in our finances as well. I think you're getting the point. I think you're, you're understanding this. If heaven's got a hold of my heart and I realize that I'm on a camping trip that it affects the way that I live and it's all leading to this where Jesus is going to subdue all things. I don't know how things are going to go in the future, but I do know it's leading up to Christ ruling and reigning. So consider this one question with me tonight. Am I heavenly minded? Is my focus upon heaven? Is my focus upon the fact that Christ has given to me eternal life? Or have I somehow made it all about this life? I heard this poem this week. I want to read it to you. It's called Lord Disturb Us. It's by Francis Drake. It says, Disturb us, Lord, when we are, when we are too pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true because we have dreamed too little, when we have arrived safely, because we've sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, Lord, when with the abundance of things we possess, we have lost our thirst for the waters of life, having fallen in love with life. We have ceased to dream of eternity, and in our efforts to build a new earth, 
we've allowed our vision of the new heaven to dim. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture on wider seas where storms will show your your majesty. We're losing sight of land. We shall find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and to push back the future in strength and courage and hope and love. This we ask in the name of our captain, who is Jesus Christ. So let's, let's pray together. Father, I think that this is a bold prayer to ask that you would disturb us. If we're too comfortable, if we're too satisfied with the things of this world and the things of this life. I confess to you sometimes, God, that it seems like heaven is so far away. But yet we know that we could be just a moment away. We could be a breath away from being in your presence and beholding you. We ask that through the power of the Spirit that you would give us a greater understanding of our citizenship in heaven. A greater understanding of how important it is that people are prepared for eternity. That we would care about the things that you care about. Father, if we're in a place of hopelessness tonight as we look around at this world, at this earth, may our eyes be lifted higher. May we hear the words of you, Jesus. Let not your hearts be troubled, for I've prepared a place for you. Be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. So, Father, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.